Well, good morning. Just uh, want to publicly say uh, how much I appreciate uh, Greg's ministry among us, just his heart and his spirit, and uh, looking forward to what other ministry God has for him among us. Well, turn with me to Luke 5. We're going to look at the next uh, section in our walk through Luke. But before we do, let's uh, talk for a bit about literature. When I was a student at the University of California, I took a class called Bible as Literature. It was terrible. The uh, professor treated the Bible unlike anyone would treat any other piece of literature. He did his absolute best to tear it apart and to discredit it and to show that it was mostly uh, forgery and plagiarism. Fortunately, his best was not very good, and I came out of the class more convinced than ever that the Bible is accurate and authentic. But the Bible is literature, and it can and it should be studied as literature. There's a basic um, principle of literature that uh, is known as the, the principle of authorial intent. Now, simply put, that just states that a passage means what the author intended for it to mean. That may sound overly uh, basic and simple, but an awful lot of people uh, neglect this principle, ignore it. Much of our uh, debate that's currently going on about the U.S. Constitution is an attempt by some to ignore what the uh, authors intended for it to mean. And when it comes to Bible study, this is a principle that is commonly neglected. A lot of people will will talk about levels of meaning. And they'll find stuff in these texts that are are amazing, uh, that you have no clue where they got them. Uh, A fantastical, spiritualized interpretation. Or they'll argue that, that any passage means what they want it to mean. But it doesn't. It means what the author intended for it to mean. And the way we discover what the author intended is by looking at his words, his syntax, his use of literary devices. Now, even though there are not levels of meaning, there are levels of intent. And what I mean by that is that any skillful author will be doing more than one thing in a given passage. In fact, typically they're doing at least three things. First of all, within that passage, they're, they're making points that they want us to understand and to be affected by. Those points can be discovered even studying the passage in isolation. But they're almost always doing at least two other things. They're developing characters. As you see how a certain character acts and reacts in a passage, you begin to understand the personality of that character more. And then they're also stringing these, these passages or stories together to develop a larger theme or, or a, a larger plot, whether it's the, the theme of the whole section or, or the whole book. Well, this morning we're going to look at three stories from uh, Jesus' early ministry. Now we want to look at each story and, and, and get the points being made in that story. But we also want to, to look at the development of our understanding of Jesus' character, who he is, what he's like. And then we want to see how these stories fit together around a larger theme. So let's take a look at our first story. Luke 5, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, 
with the people crowded around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, now we know him as Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. When he, then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And this is a good way to, to be able to address such a large crowd, didn't have microphones. He just pulled a little offshore so everyone could see him, everyone on, on the bank could hear him. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. (coughs) Excuse me. Peter and his partners, uh, Andrew, James, and John, had been fishing all night. They caught nothing. They just finished the uh, tedious job of cleaning their nets. Jesus asked Peter if he can teach from his boat. No problem. Gets in the boat, they pull out. A great way to, to teach this crowd of people. But then this preacher steps way beyond his proper place. He tells Peter to drop his nice, clean nets back in the water. Now, you can almost hear the, um, the condescension in Peter's voice and what he said. And what, what he was thinking beyond and behind what he said was, you know, these religious types think they know it all. You know, he's telling me how to run my business. He had to stick to the religious stuff. I'll take care of business. I know about real life. I wonder how many of you think like that when you're hearing the Bible taught. You're wondering what uh, this guy knows about business. and How could he possibly know what the real world's about, talking about honesty and not cutting corners and not cheating. You know, how far do you think I'd get if I didn't cut a few corners? Now, that's nice for church, but that's not the real world. Or maybe when you're listening to the Bible, or what the Bible says about sexual morality, you wonder to yourself what the Bible could possibly know about your own real-life sexual needs. Or about marriage. You think to yourself, well, that's a fine theory. But you don't know my wife. You don't know my husband. It just won't work. See, that's exactly what Peter thought. He said, Lord, we've been out all night trying exactly what you're saying, and it just didn't work. See, we think empirically or or logically. We kind of test things out. We want it all to make sense. The problem is what Peter was asked to do logically wouldn't work. He'd already tried. The fish weren't there. There was no reason to believe that this could happen. Then Peter says something that's really key. He says, But because you say so, 
I will let down my nice clean nets. I'm sure he was shaking his head as he said it. But again, this is key. Sometimes when God asks us to do something or tells us to do something, it makes absolutely no sense. We've been around long enough to know it won't work. But that's when we have the opportunity to say, but because you say so, Jesus, I will do it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood our confusion at this point. He said, we don't understand in order to obey. We obey in order to understand. That's an important distinction. We don't understand in order to obey. We obey in order to understand. You see, we want to understand first. We want to see how it will all work before we're willing to obey. If that's how we operate, we will never understand. And you will never obey. You see, obedience reveals the wisdom of God. It's as you obey that you see His power, you see His wisdom. It starts to make sense when you realize what He was really doing. One way, you get nothing. Except for frustration, fear, left in your problem. The other way, you get wisdom. You get understanding. You gain a trusting relationship with Jesus. See, Peter wisely chose to obey. As a result, he caught a glimpse of who Jesus is. And it scared him. It terrified him. He fell on his face in the bottom of this boat that was full to overflowing of slimy, flopping fish. See, he wasn't afraid because Jesus was so mean. He was afraid because suddenly he was confronted with his sinful, condescending attitude. He was overwhelmed by his sinfulness. So he caught a glimpse of Jesus, and he became aware of his own sin. That's why he said, depart from me, for I am am a sinful man. He caught a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And he became overwhelmed by his sin. It's the same thing that happened to Isaiah when he saw God. He cried out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. My wife Becky became a believer while she was watching the movie King of Kings. And in the scene where, where Jesus is crucified and he prayed, Father, forgive them. She was suddenly confronted with her own inability to love like that. It flattened her. She cried out to God, aware of her own sinfulness. Ask Him to make her someone that could love like that. You see, when we really see Jesus as He is, when we see God as He is, we have the terrible experience of facing ourselves as we are. And it frightens us. That's why most people avoid seeing God. Because they don't want to see themselves. So they'll make a false God in their mind, their image, so that they can continue to view themselves through distorted eyes. Because that's how they're viewing God. But when we do see Him, when we're willing to face Him, we see even more. We see God's grace. We come to Him overwhelmed by our own sinfulness, repulsed. And he looks at us and he says, now you're ready for ministry. You see, it was right at that moment of recognition that God gave Isaiah his ministry. Jesus says to Peter, 
Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men for me. See, when we face our sins, we become useful, God, for honest ministry, for really loving people. When we refuse to see God, because we refuse to face our own sinfulness, we refuse to obey, we just become blind and deceived. We become spirit killers like the Pharisees. But when you see God, when you stand before Him and look honestly at Him, you experience, you discover His grace. Let's look at the next story as an illustration of this, starting in verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This uh, man with leprosy sees Jesus, comes to Jesus, and we see the enormous compassion of our Lord. Now here was this guy just covered all over his body with open sores. He probably smelled foully. He was disfigured, repulsive. Yet Jesus' heart went out to him in compassion. We're told that he reached out and touched this man. In Greek, it's literally he took hold of him. What I think he did was he reached down and helped the man to his feet. This man who had been an outcast from society, who no one could go near, who hadn't been touched by anyone for years. I think Jesus wrapped his arms around him and hugged him. As this man, perhaps crying on Jesus' shoulder, Jesus whispered into his ear, I am willing. Be clean. Now Jesus is making a radical change here from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if you touch something or someone that's unclean, you become unclean yourself. But when Jesus touched the unclean, he didn't become unclean. They became clean. You see, the power of Jesus overwhelms that, changes that. We no longer need to to fear, to, to, to isolate ourselves, to try to insulate ourselves from contamination by contact with, with people around us, contact with people who live unclean lives. In the power of Jesus, we can reach out to them, we can touch them so that they can be cleansed. Jesus can cleanse them. Second point to be made here is we don't see a lot of leprosy these days in America. But there is a disease that is the cultural equivalent. You'll notice that lepers are never referred to as healed. They are always cleansed. That's because leprosy was viewed as a sinful disease. It made someone unclean. People would avoid these people. They'd walk way around them in fear and disgust. Now, the people who feel 
treated that way today in our society are the victims of AIDS. We don't have uh, uh, time this morning to to go into uh, a length and a discussion about this. I'm looking forward to having the chance to do that at some point. But let me just ask you one question. Would you hug an AIDS patient? See, if you were Jesus, you would. I think we need to face our own leprosy. In Scripture, leprosy is always the physical symbol for sin. Leprosy is physically what sin is spiritually. See, sin makes us deformed and repulsive spiritually. It causes us to stink. It makes us insensitive to self-destructive behavior. It makes us fall apart. And as God shows us what our sins are really like, then we're confronted with our own ugliness. As He shows us our, our, our personal, private sins, the things we look on as harmless little splinters in our eyes, as He shows us those in all their sickening glory, we become repulsed even from ourselves. We cry out, unclean, unclean, like the, the lepers of Jesus' day were compelled to do. Jesus looks straight at us. His heart goes out to us in compassion. And he reaches his hand out and he takes hold of us and draws us to himself, whispering, I'm willing, be clean. Let's take a look at what Jesus said right after he allowed his compassion to move him to deal with this man's physical needs. He says, he says sternly, he was almost scolding this man, don't say anything to anyone. In, in Greek, it's actually a double negative. Don't say nothing to nobody. In Greek, you can get away with that. It, in, in Greek, that's emphatic, absolute. Don't say a thing to anyone. But this guy did. He went out shouting Jesus' praises. He wanted to do Jesus a favor. Jesus is too humble. Word needs to get out. See, Jesus wasn't being superficially humble when he told this guy not to talk about it. He just knew that everybody would come for the show. Everybody would come just to have their physical needs met. People wouldn't come to listen. Now, I can't blame this guy too much. This seemed like the best thing to do for him. But Jesus isn't looking for favors. He's looking for obedience. He's looking for people who will really listen when he speaks. Now let's take a look at a third story, starting in verse 17. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to, t- <coughs> excuse me, tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, 
Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been laying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. Okay, Jesus is teaching in this crowded house. Even uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law come from every city throughout the entire country to check him out, to hear him teach. Now these guys were were, were the, the religious leaders and the political leaders of the country. What a great opportunity for Jesus to speak to them and to explain the gospel to them. Jesus had probably been looking forward to this opportunity, perhaps praying for this opportunity. And then look what happens. Jesus is teaching. He's explaining to them who God really is, what He's really like, how they can come to know Him. Everyone, even the, the, the teachers and, the, and the, the Pharisees are all hanging on every word. And Jesus is right in the middle of, of an important point. And as he looks around, everybody's starting to look up and starting to squirm around. And there's this growing crunching noise from the ceiling. And pieces of plaster start to fall down on people in the crowd. And people start getting up, mumbling to themselves, trying to figure out what's going on. Jesus had lost his entire audience. And the guy who owned the house was probably pretty upset, wondering if his insurance would cover this. Insurance policies regularly don't cover acts of God. You can blame one of the other staff for that one. You know, if I think if I were Jesus... I would have been frustrated to death right now. What is going on? But my impression of Jesus was that he probably started smiling to himself, perhaps even laughing. And, you know, this is probably a pretty comical sight. All these these religious leaders and, and Pharisees and teachers of the law who had commandeered all of the choice seats right up front and center were uh, starting to get plaster dropped on their head. You know, maybe even one of these uh, stodgy, old, stuffy, stern teachers of the law looking down at himself with indignation with his hair and his robe covered with dust. Here comes this stretcher kind of floating in from the ceiling right down in front of Jesus. You know, Jesus never seemed to get flustered by this kind of thing. Over and over in Scripture, we see him interrupted by the needs of people. But he never responds with irritation or, or, or exasperation. Instead, he seems to receive these things, as, uh, these interruptions, with humor and, and delight. You see, he knew that his father was really in control of his agenda Jesus didn't worry about what everybody else was thinking, everybody else's expectations, wanting a nice orderly service. Jesus just took what the Father brought, and he looked with anticipation to what neat opportunity the Father was engineering. He knew he and his Father were on the same team, and it was every bit as much his Father's desire for his ministry to be successful. C.S. Lewis made a profound observation. He said, The great thing, if one can, 
is to stop regarding all unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life. The life God is sending one day by day. What one calls one's real life is a phantom of one's own imagination. You see, our Father is not trying to sabotage us. He's not trying to defeat us. And the things that He sends into our lives are intended to amplify the effectiveness of our lives and ministry, to show His love and His grace and His power through us. Several years ago, Ron and Cherry Gonzalez, who used to be on staff here, were taking a a much-needed vacation down to Hanford, California. They got about halfway there, and the car broke down. It had towed to a garage, and it became obvious that it was going to take some time. Here they are, giving their time and energy for ministry, finally getting a break so they don't burn out, and look what happens. Thanks a lot, God. That's not the attitude they adopted. They knew that God was for them, that he was in control, that his plans were good. And so they looked for what opportunity God had for them there. And as they waited, Cherry got into a conversation with the wife of the mechanic who worked in the office, a woman by the name of Rosa. As the conversation went on, naturally developed, she had the opportunity to, to completely explain the gospel to answer her questions, and they began to correspond for some time after the vacation. What a delight. What a treat to have that kind of opportunity to share the gospel with someone. That was more fun than anything they could have planned for their vacation. See, God enjoys giving us these treats. We so often forget that He is for us. That, that, that he is not trying to sabotage us, that he intends to use us, that accidents don't happen in our lives. What a freedom and a joy to view every event that comes into our lives as part of the strategy, part of, of God's plan to use us to help others find life and freedom in Christ. Back to our passage When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Friend, your sins are forgiven. You see, rather than being annoyed by their interruption, he seems more than a little bit pleased by their faith. So Jesus does something unexpected. He forgives the man's sins. This is always God's response to faith to show more of himself, to help us see more clearly who he is and what he's like as he meets our deepest needs. See, these guys probably had no clue that that Jesus could forgive sins. They were just after physical healing for their friend. But Jesus goes deeper, and he meets a deeper need. And you don't get the idea that either this guy or his friends who were peering down through the ceiling are the least bit disappointed. You see, forgiveness of sin is the more fundamental need. It is more fundamental to our our well-being and and the quality of our experience of life. In response to uh, the outrage of the religious leaders, uh, the, the outrage that would have been appropriate if Jesus weren't God, because that really would have been blasphemy 
if he didn't have the authority to forgive sins. But he did. In response to their outrage, he says, Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk? Notice he doesn't say, which is easier to do. He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. See, a lot of people say that today, even though they have no authority. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus does it. And then to prove that he had that authority, he also said, I say to you, take up your, your stretcher and go home. Immediately the guy got up, picked up his mattress, and walked out. Bingo has a, a, a nice quote here. He says, the couch had borne the man. Now the man bore the couch. See, this was no partial weak healing. The guy kind of hobbled weakly out of the room. No, this guy was strong enough that he could lean down, pick up this heavy, awkward mattress, and walk out. Jesus proved he could do what he said. He proved he could forgive sins. And again, the forgiving of sins is the greater miracle. Now, we have trouble with this. In our materialistic society, we actually believe that physical health is more important than spiritual healing. See, we treat doctors as semi-divine. Now, don't get me wrong. I appreciate doctors. They make an enormous contribution to our lives. And most of them deserve our our respect and, and appreciation. But they can only fix our bodies. Only Christ can heal our spirits. And ultimately, it's the quality of our spirit that determine the quality of our lives, both in this life, this world, and the one to come. Now, this world is full of strong, healthy bodies that house miserable, decaying, dead spirits. And think about somebody like Johnny Erickson, who's paralyzed from the neck down, who, who is so full of joy and life in the spirit. Sure, she longs to get out of that chair, to hug, to walk. But she wouldn't trade the life and the ministry God has given her for that at all. My wife uh, used to work with cancer patients. And she discovered that for many victims of cancer, the greater suffering came not from the disease itself, but from their confusion and their guilt, feeling like God was punishing them or abandoning them. And Jesus speaks straight to that. He is ready and he is willing and he is able to heal the spirit of anyone who comes to him in faith. Let's take a look at that faith. It says that Jesus saw their faith. Now what did he see? Well, he saw four guys that would stop at nothing to get their friend to Jesus. They lugged this this full-grown, heavy man over hills and, 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 and through alleys and streets just to get him to Jesus. And when they got to the house, it was packed out. Nobody would let him in. So they lugged him up onto the roof. That couldn't have been easy. When they got to the roof, they could find no way in. So they started tearing the roof apart. Their desire to get him to Jesus was that strong. They had that much confidence that Jesus could do something. But it was not only confidence that he could do something. They trusted him that he would 
do something. See, they were willing to work hard. They were willing to cause a disturbance. They were willing to suffer the irritation of the crowd and the anger of the guy who owned the house just to get their friend to Jesus. They were willing to foot the bill for a new roof if that's what it took because their trust in that Jesus would do something was that strong. They demonstrated their faith by their dogged persistence. Probably they had seen Jesus heal before. That's probably where they got the idea. They saw him to be tender and compassionate, unlike the uh, stern and, and critical religious leaders. And notice, they make no request on Jesus. They make no demands as they lower their friend in front of Jesus. They just simply lay him at Jesus' feet, knowing that Jesus is good, that he'll do what's needed. You know, people, this is a wonderful example for us. I speak to myself just as much as to you here. Do we trust Jesus like that? We see an accident. We'll call an ambulance. But when we see people around us dying in, in darkness and confusion, will we call on God? Will we bring them to Jesus? Or do we expect that that won't do any good? Do we expect that he can't really help them or that he's too busy or that he's too grumpy? Are we willing to make the effort to to pray for those around us who have no spiritual life? Are we willing to go through the discomfort of bringing up an uncomfortable subject, of recommending Jesus to them? See, that's all that faith requires. That's all we can really do. We can't fix them. We can't solve their problems. All we can do is lay them at Jesus' feet, knowing that he will love them. He will meet their need. And telling them how we have found Jesus to be compassionate, forgiving, caring, able to heal. Ray Steadman once said, Nothing is more deadly in a church than the attitude of come weal or woe, our status is quo. Because the members are afraid to do anything that might be criticized. See, people, as a church, we cannot be so concerned about doing something that might look foolish or unsophisticated. We can't be so worried about offending, so involved with propriety, that we just sit around and play church, do nothing, while the people around us, our friends and our family and our our work associates and our neighbors are suffering from spiritual paralysis while Jesus stands ready, willing, able to love them and to heal them. Verse 26 says, Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God and they were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. The word translated remarkable there is paradoxa. Literally, they said, we've seen a paradoxical thing here. We've seen something that contradicts what we expected. That contradicts what we believe. But what had they seen? They'd seen what God is really like. William Barclay says, Jesus is displaying the attitude of God toward men. That attitude is the very reverse of what men had thought God's attitude to be. 
It was not an attitude of stern, severe, austere justice. Not an attitude of continual demand. It was an attitude of perfect love. A heart yearning with love and eager to forgive. Lewis Hind tells a story about when he first discovered his father's love. He was a young boy sitting in church with his father. As the preacher droned on, he began to fall asleep. And as he was drifting off, out of the corner of his eye, he saw his father lift his hand. And he expected that his father was going to strike him for falling asleep in church. But that raised arm just wrapped around him and cuddled him close so that he could sleep more comfortably. Heinz says, on that day I realized what my father was really about. You know, Jesus, in the way he responds to these interruptions, these frustrations of his plans and desires, he shows us perfectly what our father is really about. You know, apparently no one who was in that house that day remembered what Jesus said, but they all remembered the lesson. And ultimately, we need to remember that lesson. When we come to Jesus with our needs, He may not always immediately meet those needs. He may use that as an opportunity to go deeper, to meet deeper needs, to show us Himself, to relieve us of the guilt and the sin that is our greater need. As we uh, lay before Him, unable to, to move, unable to, uh, to get up, Weak and helpless, he smiles at us. He says, my child, your sins are forgiven. You see, these three stories are all about how Jesus responds to sinners. When we see him as he is, we're confronted with who we are. We see our own sin. We're overwhelmed expecting that that He will reject us in our ugliness. We ask Him to leave us, to go away. But if we stand before Him, He reaches out His arms. He draws us to Himself. And He makes us clean. His response to faith is to forgive sins. That's who He is. That's what He's like. He is willing. Be clean. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these stories. They're, they're fun to just see the, the realistic way people responded to you. To see uh, these things that happen, but especially to see your attitude, your heart, as you uh, love people in the midst of all of this. Lord, we want to learn to love like that. Yet we uh, confess that we are unable. Our sins and our selfishness are, are too strong. And we see that. And we want to run away. We want to give up. We want to stop uh, even uh, looking. Lord, give us the faith to walk boldly up to you and to confess that you can make us clean. Lord, we depend on that. We depend on your reaching out, healing us, reaching out and making us clean.
and by your Spirit in enabling us to love others, to minister in your name. Pray for each person here that you would give them that holy courage to, to face their sins, to feel the shame, to be repulsed by them, yet to have the, the faith to still walk up to you and to allow you to cleanse them, to free them, to give them the, the joy of forgiveness. Lord, uh, we worship you and who you've shown yourself to be today. Amen.